Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writers Tool Belt, the podcast that offers you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find information about the Creative Writers Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from the first 100 episodes of the podcast into one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writers Tool Belt and that it's helpful to you on your writing journey. Hello and welcome to episode 125 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt. This episode is the second of a two-part series of episodes featuring a conversation I had with Sandra O'Donnell. Sandra has worked for many years as a coach and agent and has distilled all of the best advice that she has for writers into a new book called Your First 15 Pages, which is a definitive guide for creating a novel that agents will champion editors will publish and readers will buy. And in this second of these two episodes, we talk about the why of your story and why that's the critical element that should hook the reader. We also talk about how character, place and the inciting incident can work together and how to master third person point of view where you have multiple characters in your story. Sandra also goes on to recommend some of the writing tools that she and her clients use to enhance their productivity and the quality of their work. Sandra also goes on to recommend some writing tools that she and her clients use to enhance productivity and the quality of work. I think this I think this is a fascinating conversation. I had a fascinating and interesting conversation with Sandra. I hope you enjoy it and find it useful. Here it is. Now I want to come back to creating characters and maybe just talk about this just a little bit more before we move on because I think one of the one of the real challenges for us writers is is creating characters and what we don't want to do is what I call a kind of pick and mix approach in that a list a random list of stuff does not make a character oh no 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 Um, it does not so literary agent what should we do how do we add that kind of subtlety and nuance and and how do we how do we create a character effectively and quickly that really gives that really has clarity in the mind of the reader well let's talk about what what Leanne Moriarty does in The Husband's Secret with Claire. So here's a woman who, what we need to understand about her character in order to understand her story is we need to understand that she is very precise, that she handles everything in a very regimented, very precise way. So to show us that, she she shows us that after she makes a cup of tea, she scours the the kitchen sink until it it shines. Well, she says shown because she's Australian. So she <laughs> scoured the kitchen sink until it shone. So, I mean, what she's showing us there rather than telling us is this is a very fastidious OCD person. She shows mm. us the labels that she has in her pantry. So every shelf, every jar, everything in her kitchen is labeled with a, a, an actual label maker in a very precise <laughs> way. Okay, so we get an idea of this is a pretty uptight, very regimented, very precise person. Now, that's a lovely way of layering a character. Instead of, you know, telling us she has OCD, she's uh, uptight, you know, she doesn't use typical words to tell us about the character. She shows us the character Mm, in a really lovely way. Um, If we look at the book, The Firm... The description of Mitch in the firm is that he's hungry. 
And Gresham uses that term, uh, I want to say he uses it five times in the first 15 pages to describe Mitch. Hmm. There's no physical description of Mitch in the firm. We don't care. I mean, it doesn't matter. What he looks like is unimportant. It doesn't matter if he's if he looks like Tom Cruise or not. He's an attorney. That's important. That's crucial to the story. The other thing that's crucial to the story is that Mitch was from a, a relatively poor family, and he's being the carrot that the firm is dangling in front of him is more money than he ever thought he could possibly make, and he's hungry. So hmm. that's all we need to know. Those are the descriptors of Mitch in uh, the first 15 pages of the firm. So we've almost as a kind of complement to each other, we've got a key feature of the character and kind of interlocking with that a goal or an ambition or something that's driving them. And those right. two things are fitting together there. Right. Because in that story, Mitch's ambition is his Achilles heel. It's what brings him yeah. down ultimately. Yeah. You know, and I love that story because his wife is his Cassandra. She's the one that, you know, there's a lot of Greek mythology in that story. Mm. Um, she's the one that's kind of, you know, giving him the warning over and over and over again. Why are they paying you this much money? You know, yeah. why are these people so weird? Why are <laughs> we, you know, and he doesn't want to heed it because no. his Achilles heel is his ambition yeah. and his, he needs to prove himself and the need to prove himself that he's as good or, or, you know, that he could rise above his, his terrible trailer park, um, childhood yeah. and be as good as anybody else. So, yeah, there's a lot of mythology worked into that story. And I guess as well, just, just from what you were saying there, it strikes me as well that we, we understand why he doesn't hear the, the, the advice. We understand it's believable, it's credible that he would not hear, because of his, because of his background, because of his context, it kind of works, doesn't it? That, that, yeah, we can understand why, even though his wife's saying the sensible thing to him, because of everything that he desperately wants and didn't have maybe early in life, we, we believe in why he's making the choices he's making. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the why of that story is, you know, that we've all, we've all had the experience of having something sound too good to be true, <laughs> but we want to know if this is one of those times. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we keep reading, right? We yeah. want to know, is is this too good to be true? What's yeah. going to happen to this young guy, this hotshot lawyer? You know, he's going to go to work for this firm. And then what? I do this exercise with my, um, with my nephew, who's three. We do storytelling. And I'll go, and then what happened? And then what? And that's what we are supposed to be doing as yeah, writers. You absolutely. know, we're supposed to be setting up the reader so that the reader is constantly going, oh, my gosh. And then what? And if you stick to that, why? If you if you figure out the why pretty early on and you figure out what your inciting incident is and you get really clear on those two things and all of your action, the what of your story, the action, all leads from the inciting incident to the middle builder, the crisis of the story, and then mm. from there to the resolution, mm. your story will stay on track and your reader will be right there with you the whole time. There's a reason why this stuff works. Isn't there? <laughs> it's a reason why it creates great <laughs> stories. Um, There's a reason, yeah. And it's, it, it, you can, you know, it's funny because when I first, uh, I first 
was talking about this. I was talking about it in a with a group of writers that I've been wor- working with. And I said, you know, here's what I'm doing. I'm writing this book. It's called Your First 50 Pages and yada, yada, yada. And one of the writers left and went to Barnes & Noble with a couple of friends who were also writers. And they literally sat in the aisles at Barnes & Noble and went through the first 15 pages of a ton of books. She said we had books piled up on, in the in the aisles. And she said, it's there. When yeah. you start looking for it, you see it. It's clearly there. Mm. So it's just once, you know, it's the yellow Volkswagen principle. Once you're aware of, well, I don't know what the equivalent would be in the UK. But once you become aware of something, you see it. You yes. start seeing it yeah. over and over and over again. Yeah. 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 But it, it, what, what comes to my mind is, again, as you were saying that, was almost a kind of there's a cautionary tale for writers here because I think writers are, and I'm speaking as well myself, we are unruly characters. We're unruly spirits in that for many of us, the way the way we develop stories, the kind of organic way in which we develop stories mean, means they meander all over the place. And I think it's a mistake. We can make the mistake of thinking that this meandering piece of prose that we're generating is the best thing ever written. Whereas, in fact, the really successful story is the disciplined story, has a, has a structure to it. And that doesn't, I think, as you were implying, it doesn't take away at all any of the literary quality of what, what's being produced. I think it actually gives a writer freedom in yeah. many ways. Yeah. It gives you freedom. If you, act, if you know what the story is and you understand where the story begins, then it gives you the freedom to tell the story that you truly want to tell as opposed to going down that path that um, so many writers go down, where they do exactly what you're talking about. They just write and write and write and write, um, but they don't really know what they're writing or why Mm. they're writing Mm. it. You know, they Mm. have a story kind of in mind, but it never really fully gets fleshed out. I just think it is so much more um, productive in the long run and freeing at the same time to know, you know, the why and the inciting incident and who your main characters are and what's at stake for each of those characters, then you can really write your story. Mm. I'm going to come back to your book now because there's a point in it. uh, And this kind of connects in some of the things we've been saying about characters and some of the things we've been saying about inciting incident. So in your book, you say that everything the characters do and say, and even the places that they visit should all tie back to the inciting incident. So I wondered if you could just, because that seems like quite a challenging thing to say, and I, I kind of half believe it, but I'd like to hear you just expand <laughs> on that a bit and tell me how that would work. Okay, so let's uh, let's take a different example. Let's take the example of um, the book The Martian by Andy Ware. Yeah. Um, so The Martian is a book that's almost entirely set. There's there's some side story uh, of the people that work um, for NASA or the space um, agency that's trying to help him get off of Mars, but uh, almost entirely set in on Mars, and it's a first-person point of view. Everything that the main character does in that story is geared toward getting out of the predicament that he's in. It's getting off of Mars. Mm. His mm. whole, you know, that is the goal from the get-go. He he goes through his little crisis of 
okay, I'm here, I'm alone, I'm going to die. Uh, I think he, he actually says, I'm on Mars and I'm aft is the way, that's a quote from the book. But his whole process in that story is about how do I get off this red rock? There's no meandering. There's no action that he takes. There's no um, point in that book. And that's a pretty thick book. I mean, that's that's a hefty, hefty uh, book stop or doorstop of a book. There's no action in that book that does not tie directly to getting him off the rock, getting him off that planet and back to Earth. It's mm. not as hard to do as you think. <laughs> you know, it really isn't. I mean, why would you tell a story where you you have this guy who's, you know, stuck on, on Mars, but yet you, you go off and you start meandering down this path where we see this whole backstory of him at, at you know, studying at Oxford or something, or, yeah. you know, living in Cambridge or, or um, going to a desert island and hang... I mean, unless it has a direct tie... Unless that experience somehow informed his need to get off of the planet, there's really no reason to bring it into the story. And yet people do it all the time. They bring in characters that have mm. nothing to do with the plot, mm. or they bring in side um, stories that just kind of meander around for three or four chapters. And and there might be a loose tie at some point, but... You know, it's really a waste of the reader's time. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I think it's kind of lazy writing because you're not sticking to the story that you intentionally, you know, you intentionally set out to tell. Mm -hmm. You're allowing yourself to meander down these paths because you're not sure where you're supposed to go. And we see it. Yeah, I bet you I bet you guys see it all the time. And and uh, that that was what I was meaning when I was talking about this kind of un, the unruly writer and the unruly writer's imagination and and, and again, I, I, people, different people have different views on this, but I think I agree with you that actually the discipline of applying the best practices that we're talking about here frees the writer actually to produce their best work. But I, I, I want to sort of change tack now. Um, and again, I want to I want to just ask you about a subject that I struggle with in the context of writing. Um, so I'm really interested to hear your perspective on it. Point of view now. Uh, we've alluded to this a little bit where you have a really powerful central character like in Andy Weir's The Martian and you've got first person point of view it's maybe not so difficult but where you've got a if you're writing a story where there are lots of characters and the point of view shifts between characters how do you manage that without it becoming I think some some agents and publishers refer to it as head hopping how do you manage that without confusing your reader uh, and losing the plot a bit with with where the point of view sits Okay, and this again, everything, <laughs> everything goes back to the why and the inciting incident. So you have to look at the scene that you have your characters in, and you have to determine what is the point of that scene and how does it tie back to my inciting incident and to the overall why of my story, and whose story is it to tell at that moment. So you really have to ask yourself as the writer you know, whose story do I need to tell right now? And who is the best person to be speaking? So, for example, in um, The Husband's Secret, which is third-person point of view and, and shifting point of view, so the point of view moves from um, the husband to the wife to um, 
to the mother of the the young girl who's murdered, which is kind of a backstory in the story, um, and even to the voice of, of one of the children, it's really whose story is it to tell at the time? And you have to look at that very carefully. So when the husband is trying to get her not to open the letter, hmm. we see things from his point of view, because he's the one that's trying to prevent her from opening the letter. So that makes perfect sense, hmm. right? Because yep. it's his, he, what he has the most to lose in that scene. And so that's what you really have to look at. Who has the most to lose in this scene or the most to gain in this scene? Whose scene is it? And then that's, what determines or drives the point of view for that particular scene. In another book that I reference in your first 15 pages is The Invention of Wings. I am such a huge fan of Sue Monk Kidd and her writing. Her writing is beautiful and literary, but it also follows all of these best practices. Mm -hmm. She uses alternating point of view. So she tells the story from uh, Sarah's point of view, and then she tells the story from Handful, the young black slave girl's yeah, point of view. Yeah. And she okay. alternates those points of view beautifully. I mean, it literally is alternating chapters. So one chapter is Handful, and one chapter is Sarah, and it goes through the whole book that way. Okay. Um, and it really gives you a deep perspective on what's at stake. And and the thing that the beauty of that book, and for me, the why of that book is, um, the overall why is to understand how we grappled with slavery and why we put up with slavery for as long as we did. Mm. But the mm. other why of that book is to understand that we're, we are all at some point in our lives, both free and enslaved. Mm. And so, you know, oftentimes Handful would be this, you know, she was in the position of slave throughout that book. But there were times when she, her spirit was much freer than her owner's spirit was. Mm. And so you see that shift, you know, as, as Suma Kid shifts point of view in that book, it becomes very clear that, that the um, state of being free and the state of being enslaved either by your circumstances or, you know, a physical slave uh, shifts between those two young mm. women fascinating the way she does it but it's through point of view and if she had not chosen that alternating point of view i don't think the book would be nearly as powerful as it mm. is so just a couple of follow-up questions again on, on point of view it, am i right in thinking then that your advice basically is consistent point of view for each scene so you take a scene it might be a chapter whatever it is it's one single point of view for that scene. It's answering those questions that you said, who's got the most to lose and gain? Whose scene is it? And that's the person who holds the point of view for that scene. I think it, it really depends on the story. But um, if I were writing a story that had multiple characters, the way that I would, the first thing that I would do when I was trying to determine point of view for a particular scene or a chapter is I would ask myself, whose scene is this? Who yeah. has the most yeah. at stake? Yeah. And that's how I would determine who speaks or who has, you know, the most pull or the most weight yeah. in that particular scene. Uh, do you think where where point of view is shifting chapter by chapter or, or even scene by scene? Is it a good idea or can you even make a rule on this to to indicate at the start of the chapter or scene whose point of view is now being presented? So sometimes I I see it in, in books, it'll just say the name of the per a person at the start of the chapter and it's and actually it's that person's story or it's that person's point of view from then on in 
I think like in the case of the invention of wings, it was really important. And she did that uh, at the mm. beginning of her chapters because it was important to set the read the, that tone for the reader so that we understood. Yeah. So by the fourth chapter, we realized, oh, OK, this is going to go, you know, handful, then Sarah, then handful, then Sarah. So we got that pretty quickly and putting the name at the top of the chapter. And I think at some point, I think she even indicates dates possibly. So we understand the time frames sure. as well. But if it's a if it's an ensemble story, like in the case of uh, Big Little Lies, which is another uh, Leanne Moriarty book that was very popular, that ensemble, it used shifting point of view. But I don't I, and I'm trying to think back because I haven't read that for quite a while. Mm. I don't remember that she had any like indicator there. And I don't think you want to beat your reader over the head with, now this is going to come from so-and-so's sure. point of view. You as the writer need to know that. But I don't think the reader needs to be aware, unless it's in the case of The Invention of Wings. Or um, there was a beautiful book by Kay Gibbons back in probably the 90s called A Virtuous Woman that did the same thing. It was shifting between a husband and a wife's story. And so mm -hmm. they both told the same story but from very different points of view, right? Mm, so yeah. what the wife felt and what she experienced was completely different from the husband, and it was alternating chapters there as well. That was important to know for that particular story. But for an ensemble story, I don't think it's important that the reader get, you know, have it like, really labeled for them i think it's important that you the writer understand and i guess you could argue that if you're really on top of it as the writer then the reader will see immediately or pretty much yes. immediately in the in as soon as they start reading the scene or the chapter who's who's actually got the ball as it were and is is running with it absolutely okay yeah. um now one of the other things that you do in your book is to tell us about some different tools that you use and I, I, I perhaps you recommend to, to the people you work with. And I'm, I'm wondering if, I mean, there's three, three that I particularly would like you to comment on one that, and they are Airtable, StoryGrid and Grammarly. So I wondered if you could just spend a moment and tell us what they are and how we could use them as writers. Okay. So Airtable is, it's a much prettier version of an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's the best way I can describe yeah. it. It's uh, much more intuitive. It's much easier to use. And the way that we use it is we I have created and it's free and anybody can go and use it. I've created a uh, first 15 pages template for okay. writers who can go in. And what we do is I lay out the the actions, the the complications, decisions, indecisions, and, you know, the movement up through the story for each scene, the characters that are in the scene. And I have an example. I also have an example on, and I, I believe both of these are on your first first 15 pages.com. You can go to resources and you'll have access to both the example that I have for building your story with your first 15 pages for the firm Yes. so that you can see how that works with, with an actual book. And then there's a blank copy as well that people can have access to. And so what it does, what, the, what Airtable does, is it allows you to track chapter and scene, and then the type of development, which is the action, is the character, uh, the major um, action in that scene, imparting information, is it scene building, 
Is it a complication, a dilemma, a decision, or an indecision? Um, it allows you to track whether you're using action or dialogue, plot devices that you might be using like foreshadowing or character building, and then you can put notes off to the side. So what that allows you to do is very visually, and I'm, I believe in, in creating stories in a really visual way, it allows you to see if you're too dialogue heavy or too action heavy. It allows you to see if you've introduced a dilemma and a complication, but not resolve that with a decision. You know, I talk about the what of a story is um, the action. And the action mm. is what happens in real life. Every single day we wake up, we are faced with a dilemma. Do I get out of bed or do I stay in bed? <laughs> You know, the yeah. complication is if I stay in bed, I'm going to be late for work. If I'm late for work, I'm going to have a fight with my boss. Okay. My decision is I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to work, but I'm going to be grumpy all day. You know, so then there's another complication, right? My complication is I'm going to spend the whole day grumpy. What's, you know, the result of being grumpy all day, I get into a fight with my wife, you know, so that's, that's the stuff of life. The, mm. the, complications, dilemmas, decisions, and indecisions that we make on a daily basis, what we're going to eat for lunch and what impact that has, or the person that we, you know, we go to um, the local deli and we run into somebody that we've been trying to avoid for six months, you know, <laughs> so that is what happens in real life. And what we tend to do is to write books in a way that don't reflect those complications, dilemmas, decisions, and indecisions that we go through on a daily basis. So mm. I track those for story and I will go through, and that's where you can recognize where your gaps are, you know, so you can put this in a table and see it very clearly and understand that you've got some, you know, serious gaps in your story that you need to, to fill. So if you've set up a complication that never gets resolved in any way, that's a gap in your story. Mm, mm. Um, that's what Airtable does. That's Airtable. Yeah. I loved, I loved your description there. Like a, a very, what was it? A very, a very pretty version of Excel. I mean, that it's makes me want to, yes. I need to go and see this thing. That's a, that's, yeah. That really sells it for me. I'm intrigued. Very pretty <laughs> and very easy to use version of Excel. We okay. also use it to track, we track um, marketing, we track social media, we okay. use it to develop our newsletter. We, yeah. we use Airtable for just about everything. Cool. Um, so what about StoryGrid? Because uh, we, I, I think most authors, if you've been around for a while, you'll hear somebody will mention StoryGrid. And, 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 and so tell us a little bit about that. Okay. StoryGrid was developed by Sean Coyne, who was an uh, editor for, I believe, all of the big five at one point or another in his career. He now has his own publishing co company called Black Irish Books. And he was the... Um, He's in partnership, works in partnership with uh, Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art. Brilliant book. So if you haven't read that, I highly recommend it. He also wrote Bagger Vance. I mean, Stephen Pressfield is a prolific writer. Brilliant, brilliant writer. So Sean Coyne developed this system of analyzing story and understanding story called the story grid. And it's based on uh, a genre, a five clover genre breakdown and genre understanding your genre 
is huge. You would be shocked, Andrew, at how many people send us queries and they have no idea what their genre is to begin with. Wow. They, you know, they'll send us a query and say, I'm writing, um, I don't, uh, you know, I got one and this is not fiction. It's nonfiction. I, I got a query from this lovely gentleman who told me he was writing an autobiography, biography, memoir, which is impossible to do. <laughs> and he just didn't understand. And there, you know, genre is one of those really, really difficult things. And people don't often understand what genre they're working in. If you don't understand what genre you're working in, you don't understand what the conventions and the expectations of your mm. readers are. Mm. So it really goes back to the reader. If you're writing a mystery or a thriller, there are certain conventions. We expect to find a dead body. You know, we expect there to be a MacGuffin, which means kind of a redirect within the story. There are a lot of things that you have to build into the story in order to satisfy the expectations of your reader. And those are part of your genre, understanding your mm -hmm. genre. And mm -hmm. so Sean Coyne does a brilliant, brilliant job of breaking down genre. For people, and that's that's typically what we use um, StoryGrid for. I will tell you, it's not for the faint of heart. It is. Um, <laughs> it came right out of Sean's head, and uh, it's it, it takes a while. It probably took me about six months, and I'm well versed in story. I understand mm. story. Wow. Uh, it took me a while to kind of to to really get it, but I have used it very successfully with writers to help them both find the gaps and, and where the action, he also talks about action, but he talks about action in a very different way. He talks about it in uh, terms of pluses and minuses, positives and negatives. And, and he's true. He's correct in that um, action needs to rise and fall throughout the story. You don't mm. want a, a strictly positive story. You don't want a strictly negative story. You've got to give your um, your readers some breaks in there with some uplift, and then you know you can take another deep dive again into despair. But mm. he does a really good job of of helping people track their action in their story as well. And he has tons and tons of examples on the Story Grid website. So you can, I think he's broken down Pride and Prejudice. He's broken down The Silence of the Lambs. Those two, I know for sure mm. that he's broken okay. broken down. Yeah. Okay. So another um, great tool. And and finally, then there's there's Grammarly. A lot of people I know use Grammarly. Uh, as I I use it. It's great. But I want. But you mentioned it particularly in your book. So I wonder if you could tell us your perspective on why it's such a a, a great tool and how you use it. You know, we get a lot of uh, both queries and manuscripts that I can tell are first draft. I can tell just looking at them, they're first draft that they've never been looked at by anyone else. And I understand that for some writers, finding a writing group, which we highly recommend, mm. get it, get in a writing group, get other eyes on your story. Mm. Mm. It's difficult to find a writing group. It's, you know, some people cannot afford to pay for an editor. I get no. that. Some people cannot afford, you know, it's just a stretch for them to write the story they're writing. Grammarly is a free tool, so there's no excuse. And it will catch a lot of the basic, basic, basic grammar issues. It's not a replacement for having your manuscript professionally edited, which we highly recommend because a professional editor will go beyond catching commas, splices, and, and you know, where you haven't used the, 
the formal comma and all of that, they will go so far beyond that. And they will help you see things about your story that you will not see yourself. Mm-hmm. So working with an editor or working in a writing group for us is imperative. And, and it's a question we ask. If we ask for a full manuscript read, one of the questions I will ask in the email is, have you worked with, a, with an editor and are you a member of a writing group? Because mm-hmm. I do not believe that the best writing comes out of a, a singular experience. We, I run a writing group on Wednesdays uh, because for me, it's a way of, of staying in touch with writers, actual writers, not just, you know, people that are sending me things through yes. these blind queries. And it's important to me that I work with, with writers and see how, you know, they're developing their stories. So I have a writing group here every Wednesday and it's amazing to watch people's stories grow when other people breathe into them. Mm. I mean, it's, it's astonishing to see the difference between someone writing on their own and then they will send everyone their pages and we'll read them and we'll talk about them. And the, the way that story grows and develops is it's truly incredible. I believe I have probably, I know right now I have probably three out of eight stories that are going to be absolutely brilliant Hmm. because of the impact of other writers on those stories. Mm. The others are still in the early stages. So nothing against my other writers. So they're going to listen to this and I don't want their feelings to get hurt. (laughs) Um, It's just that they're so in the early stages, three that I know of whose stories have dramatically changed simply because they have had the impact of, of that writing group on their work. And it's been pretty phenomenal to watch. Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess the other five should be really encouraged by oh, the fact that they they're are. in that yeah. environment and, and it's going to improve their work so so much, isn't it, But by having yeah. that, that positive environment. It's so much fun, too. And I highly encourage, you know, um, I don't understand why. Well, I, I get we're all pushed for time and, and it's difficult to make time. Uh, but for me, it's energizing to work with writers Mm. and to have them, you know, have that group meeting on a regular basis. And as an agent, it helps me be a better agent. It helps me be better at at reading stories and spotting, Mm. you know, good stories, um, being involved in that group every Mm. Wednesday. So just listening to what you said there, one of the the benefits that those people that you meet with have is that they're not just in a, a writing group, they're in a writing group with a professional agent. I think there are a lot of writers around who, if you said, I mean, me, myself included, if you said you could join this, you know, you've got the chance to join this writing group. One of the people in it is a professional agent. I'd be like, right, I'm signing up now. You know, I'm, well, I'm, book me. <laughs> you'd be surprised, though. I mean, and here's what here's what it comes down to for me is there really are two two types of writers in the world that I have, I've encountered. I hate being black and white, but this is really kind of what I've come <laughs> up against. There are the writers who are in my writing group that are, they're so determined that they're going to become the best writers and take any resource they can get. And they really found this as a resource and have embraced it fully. And there are the writers who really don't want anyone else's help or input on their stories. And so, you know, your first 15 pages is not for those writers because they Mm. have already decided that they know what they're doing and they're not going to listen to 
an agent or um, a developmental editor or anyone else to improve their stories, they, by God, they've got it. And mm. that's it. And they and, probably haven't. actually. And, well, and, and it's fine. I mean, you know, that's just the book is not for them. Yeah. Um, so I'm I have gotten to the point after doing this for so, so many years that I recognize very quickly at conferences, I do conferences and I mm, do, um, mm. you know, I go to writing conventions and I, I do talks and people come up after, you know, and they're talking to me and I've learned to recognize very quickly the person who really wants help and is really willing to embrace a resource and the people who aren't. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. And it used to be frustrating and now I'm just kind of like, well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> You can't help everybody. Uh, so we're we're coming towards the end of our, our conversation now, I think. And um, we've been talking about your book, the first, your first 15 pages. Let's get the title right. Your first 15 pages. And I wondered if you could perhaps just give us the two or three critical things that maybe from that book, maybe your experience as uh, professionally, all of that stuff, the two or three things that you would say to a writer if, if you can only say two or three things to them that they really need to take on board? First, I would say get the book. Because, and I mean, there, there are resources, writing resources out there. I list a number of writing mm. resources on uh, both the Row Literary website and on your first15pages.com. There's some really good resources out there. Find good writing resources. Take the advice of people like Sean Coyne, mm. like me. We've been doing this for a very long time. We've been reading story for most of our adult lives. We understand story. Mm. So, you know, find the resources that you can get a hold of easily. Read. Read in your genre. Read like crazy. Take books apart. Your books, the books in your genre are your classroom. You know, I don't mm. believe everyone has to get an MFA in order to become a brilliant writer. In fact, uh, we pass on MFA and pushcart prize winners as mm. often as we pass on people that have never had a, a writing course. It doesn't take an MFA to become a good writer, but it does take reading to become a good writer. You have to read and mm. you have to read in your genre. And I tell people, read the book the first time for pleasure. Read it the second time for craft. Take it apart, understand, mm. you know, what what the writer was doing with character, with scene, with action, with dialogue. And then the third thing is find a group of writers. You can't write alone and write a really great story. It will help you in so many ways. It, it'll push you when you're down and you just think you're done. It Working with a group of writers will challenge you. It will help your story grow. It's fun it takes a, you know, it can take a while to find a really good writing group. Mm. But when you find a good writing group, it is the best thing that you can possibly do for your writing. Now, what tends to happen when I interview agents is that at least some of the people who listen think, oh, I must send my manuscript <laughs> to this person now. So um, I wanted to give you a chance to tell us what you want to receive from people and what you don't want to receive and that may be in terms of the the genres that you serve or the kind of manuscripts that you get is it if if i guess if people want to contact you as an agent what do you want to see from them and what don't you want to see from them okay so if you want to contact me and send me your submission you can go to rowliterary.com 
We use a submission form and we do that for a reason because it allows us to ask some basic questions. And also every uh, submission we receive is uh, date and time stamped and we read them in order and we read every single submission. You might not get a personal response, but we are going to read every single submission that we receive. That was a goal that we set early on and we pretty much stuck to that. Follow the submission guidelines, please, please, please. Whether you're <laughs> querying me or another agent yeah. <laughs> um, at a different agency, we all have a way that we like to do business and it's not a one size fits all. Get my name right when you query me. That It's just, you know, it's little things because yeah. you're also, it's a working relationship and we want to see that you're taking the relationship seriously, that you're not going to be sloppy that we're not going to have to, you know, follow up with you on little tiny details that you, you know, that you're working as a professional. So do all of those things. Be sure you do all of those things, whether it's us or, or a different agent. I don't like horror books. I don't read a lot of fantasy. I don't mind magical realism. Uh, No erotica, please. No super dense, one-sided political diatribes. If you want to take a part an issue that we're facing as a you know a global society and it's done in a Malcolm Gladwell or um you know a really thoughtful way that that tries to present both sides of an issue I love that I'm a huge fan of nonfiction I'm a huge fan of Eric Larson so creative nonfiction is my jam I love creative nonfiction if it's done really really well I love historical fiction. And again, I have a PhD in history, Mm, love historical fiction. So, you know, women's fiction, any, pretty much anything except weirdness, erotica, (laughs) um, you know, I'm no vampires, no 20 shades of gray stuff, not interested in that (laughs) at all. But anything else I'm pretty, pretty open to. I, I read very widely and very deeply. Okay. So yeah. Pretty much open to anything. And uh, your your website, just to just to be clear for people, your website was uh, letter R and then letter O literary dot com. So yep. it's row literary R O literary dot com. Um, now right. we've been referring throughout our conversation to your book, your first fifteen pages. If this has hopefully sort of piqued people's curiosity, how would they get a co- that book? Is out now, isn't it? So how would they get a copy of that book? It is out and it is available on Amazon in the UK. Cool. So UK, US, uh, available on Amazon everywhere. Yeah. Anybody so, can get it. Yeah, wherever you are. So, um, I mean, just just so you know, the people the people who listen to this podcast, actually the majority of them are in the States, with people in Canada, oh, okay. Australia, uh, uh, anyway, around the world. So Wonderful. I guess okay. um, Amazon is is you know the kind of the ubiquitous amazon is is out there it's it's paperback and ebook is that correct it's paperback and and kindle yes okay well i think i think we're done sandra thank you so much that's been an excellent conversation and it's been really great to talk to you uh today well my this evening from my point of view this afternoon from yours i think we've covered loads of stuff so that's brilliant um well thank you for having me andrew it's been it's been a true pleasure and uh, i hope your listeners get a a lot out of it yeah i think they will well that's it's it's been brilliant to have you sandra and 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 thanks very much for sharing all that wisdom with us well i've truly enjoyed it it's been great good perfect brilliant all right thank you very much lovely chatting with you great to talk to you Uh bye-bye bye-bye 
Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com.